I'd invite you to turn in the passage in chapter 17 and let's fast forward just a little bit to uh, verse 40. Fast forward there to verse 40. Things are kind of coming, coming to a head here. So, then he, David, took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. It's that moment when David took his staff in his hand and approached the Philistine, approached Goliath. It's that moment that Michelangelo captured in what is arguably the most famous sculptor in the world, the statue of David there inside the Academia in Florence, Italy. It's recognized everywhere. It stands 17 feet tall. And I had tears in my eyes as I stood before it and watched it. Even in the, I mean, it's packed. Place is packed out. But still, it was just a a real emotional thing to stand there and, and, and just gaze upon this statue. It was hewn out of a block of marble that was so big that the people of Florence called it the giant. It lay kind of disposed back in the back of the cathedral there for many, many years. It was first quarried. It was 18 feet long and weighed 24,000 pounds. It took two years to transport that piece of marble from the quarry to the place where it would be worked on. And the intent was that it would be one of 12 massive statues of Old Testament figures that would decorate the interior of the Domo, the interior of the cathedral there in Florence. The first sculptor who worked on it kind of messed it up. He messed up the whole marble piece to the extent that many experts thought it's wasted, it's ruined. So it was cast off. But there was the intent to still have this turned into what it would eventually become. And so this upcoming young prodigy who was recognized as a genius named Michelangelo was given the contract to finish it. It took him two years to get David out of that piece of marble. And it, and it stands there. It's an amazing thing to see. I, I read a book recently. Some of you have read it entitled Rembrandt in the Wind by a pastor named Russ Ramsey who's also an art critic. Here's what he says about the statue. The story is all there. It's in his posture. It's in his hands. It's in his sling. It's in his vulnerability. It's in his eyes. The sling and the stone signal to us that David is looking at Goliath, who is about to die. And the look in David's eyes tells us he has no doubt. David believed God himself would guide the stone. Of course, David was confident. He knew Goliath would never even touch him. He knew the Lord would deliver the taunting scoffer into his hand. David would show up for the battle and sling the stone, and the Lord would deliver it to its mark. And that's exactly what happened. The story, Ramsey says, is perfect. A perfect enemy, a perfect youth, a perfect cast of a lethal stone, and a perfect ending. Michelangelo fitted all into the perfect statue of a perfect hero. Now, we know all of the story and recognize that David indeed is not the perfect hero. As we saw last week, David is greater than Saul, but David is not greater than the son of David who would come, right? The son of David who would be the champion. And that's what this story really is all about. And so two verses, two concepts have kind of been floating in my mind here for several weeks as we've been looking at them. And I put those two verses in your sermon notes. One of them comes from a chapter earlier that Jonathan preached for us a couple of weeks ago where Samuel is instructed by the Lord, do not look on the appearance of his height or his stature. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Two ways to look at things, to look outwardly or to look inwardly. The other verse that comes to mind is from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, where it tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. For those who would approach God must believe that he exists, that he is the living God, as we will see in chapter 17, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
So the natural tendency for all of us is to look at outward appearance. We look with physical eyes at physical circumstances. We make empirical decisions based on that physical sight. And we act accordingly to what we see with those physical eyes. But that's not how the people of God are called to see and respond to what goes on around us. That's true whether we're talking about politics or national occurrences, whether we're talking about whatever it is. We're not to look primarily simply with eyes of physical eyes. We're to look with eyes of faith, which is what Joel beautifully prayed for us. And we see Paul praying earlier in Ephesians that we would have the eyes of our hearts open so we could really see. Faith sees with the eyes of the heart. That's what the whole chapter 11 of Hebrews is about, right? It tells us that by faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the king, in verse 27, for he endured, listen to this, as seeing him who is invisible. Saul thought David was crazy. So did Goliath. Saul and Goliath, by the way, have the same perspective. Because they're seeing with physical eyes. Based on outward appearance. Now up until now, everything that's gone on in the life of David, if you will, has been in a private setting. That changes today. That changes in chapter 17. David steps onto the public scene. He steps into the public eye. And so, the chronology and the order of events can be confusing. And it's important that we recognize that, that the author is not contradicting himself here, okay? You'll hear the narrator say, say things that seem to conflict or to contradict something that's come earlier. Or if we read 16 like it happened before 17, before 18, or whatever, then there's passages in there that really liberals would choose to say, would use that to say, well, you can't trust what God's Word says. See, that, that doesn't make any sense that it's that way. But we need to recognize contextually David is stepping into the public eye. And so things are given differently, presented differently for that effect. All right. But what we see here is that David, because he is filled with the spirit of God that has rushed on him. The spirit gives David the ability to hear, see and act differently. As that same Holy Spirit does us. To see, to hear, and to act differently because we're seeing with eyes of faith. Now, let me point out a couple of things just even before we, we look at this. First off, our children's books, notwithstanding, I don't believe David is a little scrawny, prepubescent, 8, 9, 10, or 11-year-old walking, kind of wandering into the army camp and onto the field of battle, okay? I mean, those are cute pictures, but I don't think that's an accurate understanding of what's going on here. Historians and commentators tell us that you had to be 20 years of age to qualify to serve in the army. And David is close to that, probably. He's close to that age. The Hebrew word is ambiguous. It can refer to size. It can refer to age. The same word that's used to describe David as a youth is also used in the Old Testament to describe a servant. So the word is ambiguous. It can mean a lot of things. But here's the deal. He is old enough and big enough and strong enough to do some pretty amazing things here. And we will see that even more clearly as we go through. All right? Secondly, remember last week, this is important. You and I are not David in this story. We are not David. We are the frightened, timid army. Needing a hero, needing a champion. We are far too often, men especially, are Saul in this story, staying back, fearful, worried more about what others say about us or see in us than what they say or see in our God. So we're not David. And then thirdly, 1 Samuel 17 is about the eternal plans and purposes of the eternal living God and about the spiritual enemy that opposes those plans and purposes in people, about the spiritual enemy that opposes God. 
And that David is a picture, if you will, a type pointing to the son of David who will come, who is the real champion. I've already said that once. I'll probably say it again. All right. It is the son of David that stands in the gap. Remember what Goliath meant? The word champion means the man in between. He may be on this battlefield. There's another man about to step into that valley who points us to the God man. Who is our champion. So why is any of this here? Well, all of this is here because of what we read later on and what we hear coming from the mouth of David so that the world may know so that the assembly of know may know that the Lord is the living God, that the battle is his, that there is a God in Israel. He is living and he is the winner. That's that's the whole point of this. OK, so let's. Pick up the story where we started last week and follow along with me as I read, starting first in verse 12. And this is kind of a literary relief. I mean, the tension has been high. Saul and all of Israel have heard the words of the Philistine in verse 10. They are dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David. Wow, it's about time. We've been waiting for something to give us a break here. Now, David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. The next to him was Abinadab and then Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp for your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So what we have here is just really, in many ways, another day on the farm, right? Because there's David. The text tells us, again, chronologically, there's some place where we might see some difficulty in how we figure all of this out. But he's been called to play in, in, in the, there in the court of, of Saul when he has his psychotic episodes. So he's been called to play, and the text tells us here that he's going back and forth, but he still has these responsibilities at home. He's not old enough to fight in war yet. And so Jesse sends his son, and in this time of war, families are taking care of each other. The civilian force is stepping up to help those who are, who are serving them in the, in the, on the field of battle. And Jesse is, is sending David on a goodwill mission, if you will. Take this package to your brothers, okay? Now, it says that Jesse is up in years, advanced. The Hebrew could read advanced among men. So I, I think Jesse is older, obviously, but he's also respected. He's revered in Bethlehem, in his community. This is a, this is a family of good standing, okay, that David comes from. And so he is sent to his three oldest brothers, and Jesse tells his son that they are fighting against the Philistines. Well, what did we see last week? They're not fighting. <laughs> They'll line up against each other and yell at each other until Goliath takes his place. And then all the brothers and all the army back away, timid, dismayed, and afraid. So they're really not fighting, if you will. And they're just in this standoff. So David is sent with a care package. And this is where I think we get some hint that David is not a little bitty boy running, you know, running to the field of battle just out of curiosity. He's sent with roasted grain. It says an ephah, which is about three-fifths of a bushel of this parched grain. He's sent with ten loaves. And he's told to take ten cheeses to the commander of the thousand, to the, to the commander of the brothers. So, doing a little research this week, it's interesting. I get Christianity Today. It's one of the publications that I get. It, and, and it came this week, it came Monday. And one of the primary articles in this week's edition was entitled, The Shepherd Boy Who Wasn't. 
meaning he wasn't really a little boy. And this article, which just went right along with where we're at in our sermon series, uh, was about David and Goliath. And then there's another article about the archaeological dig that's just confirming biblical truths about David. It was pretty cool to see that. But the author of the article, Jordan Monson, says this. He says, David wasn't walking. The Hebrew word for run peppers the story like a punctuation mark appearing nearing every time, near, nearly every time David moves. David proceeds breathlessly from run to run as if he's forgotten how to walk. He says, David is no child. He's more like a Marine. And the reason he says that is because have you ever rocked? Have you ever carried a backpack 15 miles? Well, it's about 15 miles from Bethlehem to the Valley of Elah. And the pack that David is carrying with this parched grain and these cheeses and this bread probably weighs somewhere around 50 pounds. Now, I've rucked a pack 15 miles that weighs 50 pounds. That's not easy to do, but I have not run it. I just staggered under it. All right. David, it seems, is is running. This boy's in shape. He's more like a Marine than he is a preschooler or an elementary school kid. So he's a strong young man. And he is. Here's the point. That doesn't take away from the miraculous aspect of this count. That in no way takes away from the glorious victory that God accomplishes. And my point in the fact that faith obeys and obeys regularly is simply this. David is doing what David has always done, which is be a faithful son, a faithful servant, doing what he's called to do. Faith does that, right? Faith can be extraordinary. But it's the ordinary faith that eventually becomes extraordinary. I think that what Jesus is talking about when he says in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant, because you've been faithful over a little. I will give you charge over much. All right. Faith obeys. That's just kind of where it starts. The next thing we see is not only does faith obey Regularly, but faith hears differently. Let's pick up the account of what's going on here. So Jesse sends David to run to go quickly to the camp where his brothers are. Saul and all, I'm in verse 19. Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war, shouting the war cry. The, the, is, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. So you get the picture here. Every morning, here's the routine. The Philistines line up on their mountaintop. The Israelites line up on their mountaintop. And they yell at each other. You're a loser. No, you're a loser. They're just going back and forth trying to intimidate you, each other, right? This goes on until one particular soldier steps out into the middle. And he's massive. You'd be an idiot not to be afraid of Goliath. And then the Israelites say, oh, well, it's time for morning tea or whatever. We'll retreat back, back into the camp. I, don't, I shouldn't make light of it, but, yeah, they, they disappear when he shows up. So that's what's going on. David shows up. They're lining up, drawing up. Verse 22, David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. For 39 days now, going on 40, the Philistines and the Israelites are lining up against each other. And now for 39 days, going on 40, this champion comes out into the middle and he taunts and he curses and he belittles, he derides in every way the God of the army of Israel and the army of Israel itself. This day I defy the armies of Israel, Goliath shouted. Give me a man and let us fight together. That's been the routine every day. For 39 days, no Hebrew has stepped out. 
No one has been willing to step out onto the field of battle, which should remind us the writer does this intentionally, I believe, and I believe Goliath, Goliath knows exactly what he's doing. He's calling out the king. Remember? Israel wanted a king like the nations. Israel had asked for and demanded a king who will go before us into battle. And they thought they had that. And he was, as Israelites go, a giant. Saul was head and shoulders above anybody else in size. But Goliath knows, and now the army knows, that Saul will not respond. They had asked for a king to go before them, and they did not have one. And it's interesting, physical descriptions are rare in the Bible. But Saul's description is given for us a couple of times, and David's is as well. So we'll need to note that. He should have gone out. Goliath knew that. The whole army knew that. So every day the army lines up. Here's the taunts. Here's the blasphemy. But you know what? Some people don't know when to shut up. They don't. And Goliath is one of those guys. And he speaks up one time too many. And in the Hebrew language, it's just two words. David heard. That's all it says. David heard. I think it's important for us to recognize not only does faith obey regularly, faith hears differently. It hears differently. David's hearing is shaped by the same thing that shapes David's seeing, which is the Spirit of God. He is motivated and passionate for the glory of God. He hears everything and sees everything through the filter of the reality of God. God's purposes, God's plans, and God's people. This is the living God, and this is the people of the living God, and things should line up accordingly. That's what David sees and understands. And I I just think it's important for us to recognize for just a second that faith should cause us to be different in the way we see things, but also the way we hear things. Whether it's CNN or Fox, whether it's, whether it's news of the economy, whether it's world news, whether it's gossip, whatever it may be, we as followers of Christ should be filtering what we hear differently than everybody else. Our antennas are up, as is our understanding of the big picture. And that will come clear for us as we continue to see this unfolding before us. Part of the reason we don't hear when God is at work and perceive it the way we should, I think, is because too often our minds are just filled with all kinds of noise. We're just filled with noise. Oh, that we would be like young Samuel earlier. Just waking up in the morning with this prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Just speak, Lord. I want to to hear that. Well, David heard, and he heard differently. Because he heard differently, then he responds differently. Faith responds differently. Pick it up. Pick up the reading in verse 24. All of the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. For they were much afraid. So here's this clear contrast. The men of Israel hear it. They see Goliath. And they're much afraid. And there's this talk going on. There's this foxhole chatter going on in verse 25. The men of Israel, you're overhearing this now from the standpoint of the narrator. Have you seen this man who has come up? I mean, they must be having this conversation every day. Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So Saul, unwilling to step forward himself, has tried to see if he can raise the bounty high enough that his soldiers would somehow or other get brave all of a sudden. That it would be worth the risk for the payoff. They're going to marry into royalty. They're going to be free from the taxes and all of the obligations that come upon the Jewish families. And they will be made rich. So wealth, prestige, freedom. Who wouldn't want that? Nobody. Nobody wants it. 
But David overhears this as well. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Now, I love the fact that there's some practicality here on the part of David. I believe faith certainly allows for practicality on our part, right? And, and here, he's a man of faith, seeing with spiritual eyes, understanding and hearing with spiritual ears, but still overhears this conversation. So, what was that again? What is it that's available to the one who does this? But it goes far beyond that. Look at what David says. He's not just interested in the payoff. It goes deeper than that. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. Faith responds differently. These are the first words of David recorded in the Bible. Now David certainly has talked before. I'm sure there's places where David has spoken, but the Holy Spirit did not see fit to record any of those for us. This is the first time David speaks in Scripture. And it's not just the first words of David. It's the first introduction into this particular scenario in chapter 17 of a whole different point of view. What we hear is his response first to the defiance and the blasphemy of Goliath, and then we hear him respond to a domestic issue, okay, to a family issue, to a jealous brother. Faith responds well in both of those settings. <laughs> so what we see here first is this new perspective that's introduced into this whole account. We've not heard anything like this from Saul. We've not heard anything like this from anybody else. And faith is responding here in light of the reality of God. The word I want you to think about, and you can write it down in your sermon notes, is theocentric. Theocentric. Theocentric means that we, have, we put God at the center of our life. That we make him the center of the focus of our life. To be theocentric is to be God-centered. Okay? It's to be God-centered. Now that stands in contrast to the culture around us. Alright? The culture around us is existential. Existentialism bases our existence on our existence, okay? How I exist, how I see myself existing, how I want to see myself existing. Who do I want to be and how do I identify myself? That's our culture, right? That's not a theocentric view. That's not the viewpoint that Scripture gives us. A theocentric view is what Paul talks about in Romans. From him and through him and to him are all things. All things, church, all things in your life, from Him and to Him and through Him. That's a theocentric view. God-centered in everything. The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to, is to enjoy God. All right? It actually says to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's a theocentric viewpoint. And we hear that from David in his first words here in the Bible. And we haven't heard it from anybody else. You need to, we need to hear that today. David speaks of taking away the mockery of Israel. No one else has talked about taking away that mockery. They've all been terrified from the giant. David speaks to the Philistine with the same kind of contempt that he's hearing from the Philistine toward God's people. So obviously David is seeing things differently. What does he see? He sees an uncircumcised Pagan idolater whose life is focused on a dead God. Remember Dagon? When was the last time we saw Dagon? Lying on his face with his head separated from his body before the Ark of the Covenant. That's the last time we saw this God in chapter 5. And so here's the Spirit of God rushing upon David, filling him with a perspective that's different. Filling him with an understanding of all of life that's very different. And then he hears from his older brother. Good grief. Man. Here's what it says. So Eliab, the older brother, is overhearing all of this. And he speaks up in verse 28. Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. 
all of a sudden, Eliab is the oldest, is omniscient. He seems to know David's heart perfectly. He seems to know what's going on in the heart of his baby brother. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We, we don't need to focus on this. But you, can you hear in there maybe some vestiges of what Eliab witnessed earlier when he was passed over? And he overheard Samuel say, don't look at his outward appearance, which must have been impressive because Samuel was attracted to him. Don't look at the outward appearance. Eliab remembers that. And he remembers that in his eyes it was the runt of the liver that was picked. So there's some jealousy here, I think. And there is just contempt here. What did you do with those few little sheep that you have responsibility for in the wilderness? That's not a compliment, okay? He's speaking down to his brother. Dale Davis in his commentary on 1 Samuel says this. He says, Eliab is Goliath. He is Goliath before Goliath. Goliath expresses contempt for David, but Eliab does it first. Here's what he says, quote, In fact, one might say David has to fight three Goliaths in this chapter. For in Eliab he faces the contempt of Goliath. In Saul he faces the mind of Goliath, that mind being one that says only the experienced and the equipped can be successful on the field of battle. All of this before he ever faces the carcass of Goliath himself. So, even in the face of contempt from his brother, Faith hears and responds well. All right? Just, parents, I don't know that I would suggest you remind your children of that when they're bickering and carrying on together. But you might. Just do it gently. Do it however the Lord might lead you there. Here's the point. There's a different kind of response to what we hear and see in the world. Even in our own family sometimes. And faith gives us the ability to respond well. Then we pick up the account. Now David finally is, is brought to, if you will, or brought into, the, into, into Saul. Saul enters the story here. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail. Literally it means let no man's heart fall because of him. David's first words to Saul, fear not. (laughs) I love that. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, I'm having a fit with this microphone this morning. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Again, that word youth, it doesn't mean little boy necessarily. It can mean a lot of different things. The contrast there that Saul is making is that this man on this battlefield here has been fighting since he was young. And you don't have that experience. Verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant, I love the humility there, right? Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. Faith hears differently. Faith responds differently. And faith remembers. And remembers confidently. I I see that there. What we have here is this amazing word from David right at the beginning. Saul, chill out. Calm down. Don't let your heart fail because of this uncircumcised Philistine out here on this field of battle. All right? And here David's eyes of faith are meant to be a blessing to others. His whole perspective of faith is meant to be a blessing to others. Now Saul is doing what? He's looking at the outward appearance. He's looking at this situation as man would look at the outward appearance. He's looking at Goliath 
through physical eyes and making a physical assessment. He's looking at David with physical eyes and making a, phys- and making a physical assessment. And it doesn't add up. It, it, is, it, it makes no sense. So we, we can at least give him that much credit. He is seeing as a man sees. And what he sees is not what's needed. But David, again, reminds Saul that he's looking at the wrong things and he's looking at these things in the wrong way. Here's what's important. David remembers God's faithfulness. This is what faith does. This is actually what faith is built upon. It's built on God's faithfulness. David recounts the times that God has been faithful to him in the past. He has helped me, he says. He has enabled me to carry out my responsibilities over that flock of sheep. And he's done that, whether it was lions or bears or whatever it may be. I've delivered those sheep and been a good shepherd. And I've been strong in the way I've attacked and conquered those same beasts that would come and want to take, take a toll on this flock. He's just putting one and one together and saying, you know, it adds up to two. God has been faithful in the past. And God doesn't change. So God will be faithful today. He remembers God's faithfulness. And I love the perspective that that gives him on the enemies. He sees the enemies of God the same way God sees them. Which are just wild animals about to be tamed and put down. Do you notice the lions, the bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine all go in the same pile. They all go in the same pile. God delivered me from them. He will deliver me here. I love what one writer said. It is here that memory, okay, remembering what God has done, and logic, if God handled that, he can handle this. It is here that memory and logic are handmaids of faith. Think, church. Think about how faithful God has been in the past. And then reckon yourselves to line up with that reality. All right? Think about what God has done in the past and then line yourselves up to that reality today. That your God does not change. He will not change His mind. And He's been faithful yesterday and He will be faithful today. It is crucial to our faith that we have a good memory. Okay? Do you see the difference between eyes of faith? Do you hear the difference in that spirit-filled faith? What is David trusting in here? It's not his own ability. He's trusting in God's faithfulness. He's trusting in God's record, not his own. He comes onto this field of battle carrying the name of the living God. And he recognizes that the living God is more powerful than any other weapon that would present himself. Fear not, Saul. I will fight. God will empower me. God will bring about the victory. That's what he says to Saul. Faith responds differently. And then faith, as a part of that response, steps in and acts. And the way that faith acts is not the way that the world does it. This little episode here where Saul says, go and the Lord be with you. That's just words in my mind because what he does next is not indicative that he's really trusting the Lord. He feels like David probably needs to be armored up. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. I'm in verse 36. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. There's no indication here that this armor was a man-sized armor on a little bitty elementary school boy. That's not the picture we have here. The picture we have here is that David, understanding the ability that he has, understanding how God has delivered him in the past, and also understanding that he can't go onto the field of battle burdened down and weighted down by, by weapons he's not used to. Okay? He, he can't do that. And so the, the picture here is one of, of, I think, if we want to spiritualize this point, and it's okay to do that here, I think that because Saul and Goliath see the battle the same way and see weapons the same way, then Saul understands that David doesn't have a chance. And he especially doesn't have a chance if he's not armored up 
the way Saul believes he needs to be armored. But there's a paradox here. Here's the king taking the king's armor and putting it on the king to come. And he doesn't know that, but that's what he's doing. Just an interesting note there. Kind of a symbolic passing of the armor. So in verse 40, David took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now we're going to pick up the actual combat next week. It'll be a really, really short sermon. It's only two verses. All right. Well, it may not be a really, really short sermon, but there's not much fighting here. Okay. It's all, it's all build up. All right. And the Philistine moved forward in verse 41 and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. We don't see this in the pictures either, by the way. There's three people on this field of battle. It's not just David and the giant. There's another one there as well. Verse 42, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The idea for disdain there means like, who do you think you are coming onto this field of battle? You are not worthy to step on this field of battle with me. That kind of an attitude, okay? He disdained him because he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Don't miss that. There is a spiritual element to this physical battle. Remember, we do not wage war against flesh and blood. And when Philistine comes on this field of battle and incurs the name of his gods and curses David by the names of his gods, it escalates this bad boy to a whole different level. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. In verse 45, this is what we're going to focus on. We'll think about the rest of this next week. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. What is it that David brings? Look, I come to you with a name. The name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Here it is that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Faith acts and it acts accordingly. Faith acts accordingly recognizing that in the end there's really two powers. There's worldly power and spiritual power. And those are clearly contrasted here for us, okay? One is iron and bronze and the other is the name above every other name. That's what David comes onto the field. The Lord of hosts the God of heaven's armies, the commander-in-chief of all the universe, is the weapon that David bears onto this field of battle on this day. Faith understands there's two powers. Faith acts accordingly, understanding that there's really only two, if you will, two perspectives. World-centered or God-centered. Again, theocentric or man-centric. All right? Anthropor, I forget how I would say, anthropocentric, I think is how I would say that. You're either looking at the world through the eyes of faith or you're looking at the world through physical eyes. Which brings us to only two outcomes. Alright? One is the winner and one is destroyed. By the way, that's what we see in Revelations. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. We see eternal victory or eternal destruction. And the motive behind all of this is that the world may know and the people of Israel may know that the people of God may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. That is a primary scriptural truth throughout all of God's word. Remember what the motivation was behind God performing the works of the Exodus? Why did God deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt? Why did he choose to bring them out from under the hand of Pharaoh? He told Moses specifically why he was doing it. And Moses communicated that specifically to Pharaoh. It says in Exodus 9 and verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, speaking to Pharaoh, 
and on your servants and on your people. Why? So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In verse 15, the Lord says, By now I could, put out, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with a pestilence and cut you off from the earth. God says, I could have done it just like this. But for the purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. There it is. That's, that's what David is driven by. That's the perspective that impacts everything about what David sees, what David feels in his heart, and how David responds to what he sees and senses with the eyes of his heart. Let me wrap this up. We're going to get into this more next week, but let me just give you a couple of points of kind of general application here, okay? Here's one thing that we see at the beginning. There's nothing flashy about faith, guys. There really is, in, in one sense, there's nothing flashy about it. It's just doing everything that God calls us to do for the glory of God and doing it as best as He enables us as well as we can. It's just being obedient regularly in, in those little things, obedience to our parents, not being drawn into unnecessary conflict, respect for those in authority, even if we know they're on their way out, like David showed to Saul. Faith is not that extraordinary in one sense. It's In some ways, it's just not very flashy. It's just doing what God calls us to do. All right? Secondly, this theocentric, God-centered view of life is the life that experiences as, again, as Joel prayed, as Jonathan mentioned, as we've sung this morning, this life of dependence on God is the only place we're going to find security, joy, and the flourishing and the prosperity that God wants us to have. When we see as man sees, listen very carefully now, when we see as the world sees, hear as the world sees, and respond as the world sees, we are setting ourselves up for anxiety, for fear, timidity, Conflict with people around us. We are setting ourselves up for disappointment. And if that continues on and on, it's just showing forth the fruit of a root that is disconnected from the living God. So eventually it brings eternal destruction. This is no small deal. This theocentric life is the only life that is life. And the enemy understands this. That's the reason, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he wants us to blind, he wants us blind to the image of God that's seen in the glory of Christ. He wants us blind to the reality of the living God. Because if we're blind to the reality of the living God, then we're vulnerable to the tactics of the enemy. And he'll he'll step in to give us that spirit of anxiety and dread and that spirit of division. And then we'll just begin believing, like, oh, what's the point? It's futile to try to resist this. That's the enemy speaking. That's the lie from hell. That is not a God-centered view. So I just want to encourage you today to seek the Lord with all your heart if you're in Christ today. And if you're not in Christ today, He's your only hope. He's your only hope. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. I don't know what giants you face. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about ultimately that we face the giant of sin and death and hell. And the only out that we have, the only hope we have in that battle, is the champion Jesus. Trust Him. Turn to Him. David, the warrior, finally said, Fear not. Church, there's no place for fear amongst the people of God. What did the angel say in Luke 2? Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day, what? A Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Church, that's our champion. We march under His banner. We are a part of His army. And so we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Amen? We recognize we're not battling against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood needs Jesus. They need the gospel. Flesh and blood needs to know Christ. Needs to know that there is a champion. But against that unseen enemy who manifests himself around us in our culture in so many different ways, we are not defenseless. 
because we have our Savior and we have the weapons that He's given us. And finally, I was just struck by this as Joel prayed. Pray for each other. In the spiritual battle, we must have each other's backs. And as, and as Joel was reading that passage, Paul is praying for those believers to pray for each other. Right? That we would know the hope that we have in Christ. That we would know the riches of the glorious inheritance that we have in each other, in the saints. That we would know what is that amazing power that is ours. That power that raised Christ from the dead. And we know that when the eyes of our heart are open so that we see with eyes of faith. And beloved, we have the responsibility to pray for each other in that. Pray for each other's eyesight. The eyesight of our heart. Let me pray for us. God, thank you today. Thank you for reports from the mission field. Thank you for reminders of how we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ like Kurt and his family who are struggling under the weight of death, under the weight of the, the consequences of sin. Father, thank you for reminding us how we can come along beside them and be encouragers to them, intercessors on behalf of them. Thank you for showing us in pictures what you're doing in Peru. Thank you, God, for reminding us of how faithful you are in taking your gospel out through your people to the world so that all may know that Jesus is the champion. Thank you for reminding us of that today. God, thank you for your word today and for the words of your son, David. And Father, may our words and our hearing and our seeing, Lord, line up with our own testimony of faith. Father, I pray you would help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as the author, as the pioneer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, ran this race of faith, and did it victoriously. Father, help us keep our eyes fixed on him, our heart in love with him, and our mouth filled with praises for him and testimony about him to the world around us. And I pray that in his name. Amen. Amen. As we sing this testimony of faith, I'll be down here to pray with you, encourage you, serve you any way I can. Let's stand and worship together.